The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. The book of Ephesians. This book is sometimes called the treasure house of the Bible. And the reason for this is because it's, it tells us of the Christian's great riches, the riches that we have in Christ, the wonderful inheritance that we receive as believers. So I've titled the message, Richer Than You Think. It's just an introductory look into the believer's treasury today. So before we dig in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, grateful for your mercy that you've bestowed upon each one of us, Lord. We love you. We're so thankful that you've saved us, that you regenerated our hearts, Lord, when every one of us in this room, by all rights, deserves hell. Lord, yet you continue to lavish us with your love. We are so grateful, Lord. I pray that we would remember that today, that we would rejoice in this reality. And for those who are here who don't know you, they as well have seen your grace, unmerited grace, because they as well deserve hell. I pray that you might work in their hearts today, Lord, draw them to yourself, that they might be adopted into this family, that you might draw them to yourself, they might fall on their knees in repentance, crying out to you for true salvation, and they would be transformed by your grace. Lord, as we look into this text today, I pray that we would learn from this, that we would be filled with appreciation for you and for what you've done for us. We give this entire service over to you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, with that in mind, the, the fact that we have this great inheritance, I want to ask you a question. If you're a Christian, are you living like someone who has this wonderful, great inheritance in Christ? Or are you living like Hetty Green? Now you're saying, who in the world is Hetty Green? Some of you might know who Hetty Green was. She was a real-life Ebenezer Scrooge, America's greatest miser. In 1916, she died, and she left an estate of over $100 million in 1916. And you hear that, and you think, man, she must have had a lavish life. She must have had a huge house, ate the best food, had the best vehicle. But that wasn't the case. Hetty Green would only eat oatmeal that wasn't hot because she didn't want to heat up the water because it cost money. She would only eat these, for lunch and dinner, she would only eat these 15-cent pies that she could get at the store because they were only 15 cents. She wouldn't wash her hands because the soap cost money. She wore the same old black dress. She would only wash the parts of it that got a stain on them and just use a very small amount of soap. One account says that she spent half of the night looking through her carriage trying to find a two-cent stamp that she lost. And all these things sound crazy, but that's not the worst of it. At one point, her son injured his leg. She waited so long, she, started, she was trying to find a free clinic. So she waited so long to find the free clinic that his leg became infected, got gangrene, and had to be amputated because she didn't want to spend the money. Hetty Green died alone 
without any friends, and full of conflict in their life. Now, we hear that, and we think, that sounds crazy that she would do that. For someone to, who had so much wealth to go through life miserable, living as a pauper, when great wealth was at her disposal, this makes no sense to us. But many Christians today do the same thing. Not material wealth, but the wealth that they have in Christ. We have countless blessings, spiritual blessings in Christ. But many of these blessings go untapped, if you will, because many Christians simply don't understand these spiritual blessings. These individuals, they're spiritual misers living the life of a pauper when a feast awaits them. They have limitless wealth at their disposal, but they don't use it. There's an example of a man back in the 1800s who was walking down the road carrying a a bag of potatoes. He was walking down this old country road carrying a bag of potatoes, and he hears a, a carriage coming up behind him. So he looks and he sees this horse and carriage off in the distance. He keeps walking. It's a heavy pound of, or heavy bag of potatoes. And as the carriage comes up alongside of him, he says, Sir, why don't you just get in and I'll take you into town? So the guy says, Okay. He gets up onto the carriage, sets the potatoes on his lap, and they keep going. And the driver looks at him and he says, why are you carrying those potatoes? Just put the potatoes in the back. He says, no, it's enough that you gave me a ride. I can't ask you to give my potatoes a ride too. <laughs> but that's how we are in our Christian life. We, we may come to Christ, but that's, we, we can't ask anymore because he saved us. So I would ask you, is that you? I believe that if Christians understood today their position in Christ, it would radically change how they live. If they truly believed what they say they believe and lived accordingly, things would be different. They wouldn't constantly be living in worry or stress. They wouldn't be so powerless. They wouldn't be so discouraged or hopeless. The bottom line is a strong, a robust understanding of your position in Christ is the answer to many, if not all, of life's issues. When the Word of God is brought to bear on the heart of a Christian, they change as they obey. We need to begin drawing on the riches we have in Christ, and this starts by having a strong understanding of these riches. Now, as I said, one of the expressed purposes of the book of Ephesians is that we might know, chapter 1, verse 18, what are the riches of this glory of His inheritance in the saints. So what we'll see in the text this morning is that from these three verses, just from three verses... The book of Ephesians sets the reader up for what they're about to read in the rest of the chapter. Specifically, the first 14 verses from verse 4 through 14. This is like the doorstep, looking in to the treasury. In just these three verses, it gives us a ton of pertinent information concerning the riches of the redeemed. And as we dig into them, we're going to start by looking at the one who's bearing this good news. The, the one who's bringing this good news to us. Then we'll see three essential realities that lay the foundations, lay, lay foundational details regarding the who, what, where, and hows of these riches. And doing this, it'll give us a better understanding and a greater appreciation for the riches delineated in verses 4 through 14. We're not even going to get there today, but I would encourage you to go home and read verses 4 through 14. In the original, it's one whole sentence. Paul was so excited, he just was boom, 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 boom. It was one full sentence there. 
But we need to avail ourselves to these so that we can live in and enjoy these spiritual riches. So I want to start out by reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, okay? And then we'll come back and we have a lot, we have to set the context and everything, but we'll do that. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, as I said, before we dig in, we need to set the context of the book. I know we've been going through Romans for quite a a period of time now, so I want to bring you back. You did Ephesians years ago, but I want to bring you back and just set the context of the book of Ephesians before we jump into these first three verses. This book can essentially be broken down into two sections, okay? The first three chapters, you see theological issues, or I like to call it Christian doctrine. I hope you remember it this way. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Christian doctrine. The second three chapters, Christian duty. First three chapters, Christian doctrine. Second three chapters, Christian duty. Practical things. Christian practice in the second three verses. They deal with marriage, uh, parenting, basically equipping the saints. So what do we know about the specifics of this letter to the Ephesians? Well, first of all, what do we know about the city of Ephesus? Okay, Ephesus, we know that it was colonized in the 11th century B.C. by the Athenians. It was later conquered by the Persians then the Macedonians, and finally by the Romans. It was completely destroyed by fire in 356 B.C., but it was quickly rebuilt because of its important strategic location in the ancient world. Ephesus was located right on the banks of the Castor River. So this was, a, this was great because it was a chief port in the province of Asia at the time. Ephesus was, it was just a famous place. It was political, commercial, religious. It was just a center of activity. Basically, a, a pagan metropolis. There was, these huge, there was this huge 25,000 seat theater, this big racetrack. The Temple of Diana was there. So it was just a lot of pagan activity going on there. So it makes sense that Paul would go there, right? Because there's lots of people. It's a great place to plant a church. It was the center of commerce with with lots of people. Now today, if you'd go to Ephesus, there's just ruins. That's all there is. Because what happened was the Caster River, over time, it started to, to, uh, silt would come down river and it would fill in the port. So they would have to dig it out again and dig it out. And eventually they just stopped digging it out. People left. And now it's not on the river anymore, so it's deserted. But if you would go there, there's a, a small Turkish town nearby, but you can still see the ruins. Now, what do we know about the church in Ephesus? What do we know about Paul's interactions with the Ephesians? How did the church get established there? Well, if we look at a timeline kind of of Paul's interactions with the Ephesians, we can see He first came to Ephesus in Acts, Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 21. Okay, that's when he first comes to Ephesus, and we see that he came there with his friends Aquila and Priscilla. They come to Ephesus, he entered into the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews, and then he left Priscilla and Aquila there. And that's most likely the establishment of the Ephesian church. He didn't stay the first time. He left them there, and then he left. But he did have many more interactions with them. We see that after he left, he sailed to Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem to visit the brethren there and then completed his second missionary journey. He returns to Antioch. Now, he then departs on his third missionary journey. And in Acts 18.23, it's during this trip on his way to Greece that he stops at Ephesus again. And this time, 
he stays. He stays for three years, maybe a little more. So needless to say, Paul had built some pretty substantial relationships. He didn't just go to Ephesus, plant this church, and leave. I mean, he could have done that. He was a church planter. He established the leadership, but he stayed at this one, and he built these strong relationships. That's important for us to understand as we look at the text. We need to realize that Paul is writing to a flock here that he dearly, dearly loved. It's not just a letter that he's, he's writing to a bunch of believers. There was some very, it was a very heartfelt letter by Paul to the Ephesians. Now, if you were to read Acts chapter 18, verse 23 through chapter 20, verse 38, you can see both the joy and the trials that Paul went through in Ephesus. This is only a glimpse. He was there for three, maybe a little more years. And we just got this short glimpse of his time there. But you can see that God was performing many wonderful things there. He was doing miracles through Paul. Many people were being saved. It was just a great time for Paul. His influence was so great in the city that the businessmen began to, to complain that he was hurting their business. These guys were idol makers. They made these little idols of Diana, people to worship, and they say, Paul's ruining our business. So they incited this huge mob to come along. They began screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this was a hotbed for Paul. Finally, Paul decides to leave. You know, he never returns to Ephesus again. On his way back from Greece, we're told in Acts that he stops over at Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. And, and he has the leaders of the Ephesian church come down so he can exhort them. But he doesn't go back to Ephesus. He didn't want to cause any more trouble for the church there by showing up. But he loved them, and he wanted to exhort the leaders in person. So remember that as we look into this book, they had a special place in Paul's heart. Now, when was this book written? Well, the best sources indicate that it was written while Paul was in prison in Rome, Acts 18, 16 through 31. So this would be sometime between AD 60 and 62 when this letter was written. And that brings us to the final question. Who wrote it? Well, for that, let's just go back to the text and actually start to dig in. Who wrote this book? It says here right in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's pretty straightforward, right? The author identifies himself by name. We also have some of the very early church fathers, men who actually knew the Apostle John in their writings. They give Paul credit for this book. Now, in the text, we see three things concerning the bearer of this good news about our riches. We see him identified by name, then by title, and finally by who appointed him. Okay, the bearer of this wonderful news is none other than Paul. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul, the apostle, the man who, according to the book of Acts, was zealous to destroy the church. This man, who is seen in Acts 7, guarding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen, and he wasn't just an idle bystander. No, we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And then in Acts 3, we see he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, women putting them in prison. This was Paul, my friend. This was Saul. He had a great hatred for the church. He desperately wanted to stomp out the church. Acts chapter 9 goes on to say that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He even went to the high priest 
and asked him to write a letter to the synagogue in Damascus so that he, so that if he, Saul, found any there who claimed to be Christians, he could arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to face judgment there. Now, to be sure, he thought that what he was doing was the will of God. No doubt about it. We see in Philippians 3, when discussing his religious clout, before he was saved, Paul states, regarding his zeal, he says, he was a persecutor of the church. You see, the persecution by him was seen as zeal for God. The same thing happens today, right? We see ISIS or Al-Qaeda persecuting Christians in the name of Allah. This shows us that zeal means nothing if it's not a zeal focused on the right object. If it's not a zeal focused on God. And a zeal that's directed by the Word of God. The heart behind Paul's persecution of Christians was no different than any persecution we see today. It comes from the wicked, depraved heart of a lost, prideful sinner. Yet the text clearly states that this good news is being delivered through him, through Paul, through a man who was radically transformed by God. And as we think about who he was before he was saved, this should bring great encouragement. If this man can be saved by grace, anybody can. Anybody can. So is that how you approach evangelism? Or do you only talk to those who you're comfortable with? You say, ugh, God won't save that person. I can't, I, he doesn't dress the same as me. She doesn't look like me. They smell a little funny. Now, we're no different than anybody. Paul was the chief of sinners, he called himself. But God saved him. He saved Paul. He saved you. He saved me. He can save anybody. Now, the author here, the one who brought this good news, doesn't just, the identification of him does not just end with his name in the text. It doesn't just end with his name. No, the grace of God is magnified even greater in Paul that he was not only saved, but was appointed as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's identified here as Paul, which indicates his, his salvation from Saul to Paul, but then he's identified by the title of an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So what does this do? Pointing those things out. Well, it does, one thing it does is it establishes Paul's authority here. He was personally selected by Christ Jesus to be an apostle. And this was according to the will of God, the Father. Remember, there was only 12 other apostles. This shows the reader that even though he has a spurious past and he's just a man, Paul, he has the authority to garner their attention here. So this urges the reader to take this letter very seriously. He wants us to understand that he wasn't appointed by some human court, by some council. No, he was appointed by the will of the eternal, sovereign creator of the universe. He received his apostleship by the will of God. And this fact should bring about reverence and, and praise within the reader. Praise God that, that the saving and the appointing of Paul was all according to God's will. You see, Paul's pious life before he was saved neither kept God from saving him, nor did it elicit God's favor towards him. No, it was all by grace, through faith, and according to the sovereign will of the Father. And it's the same with all of us. Nothing that we do elicits God's favor towards us, nor keeps us 
from God before salvation. We're saved completely by His grace through faith. Not according to works, lest anyone should boast. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So because of this, the reader needs to take the words Paul's about to write extremely serious. Take them as they are, the very words of God. They're not just the words of Paul. They're the divinely inspired words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. They're God-breathed. Now, as we continue to consider the riches of the redeemed, we see Paul move on from pointing out who it is that delivered this message. A sinner saved by grace, appointed and given authority by God as an apostle to bring the message. He, knew, he now moves on to point out these three realities that we're going to spend the rest of the time on. These three realities we need to dwell on. The first one explains the who's of these riches. He points out the beneficiaries of these riches. See that in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we see a couple of things here regarding those who are the recipients of these great riches that Paul's about to lay out for us. First, I want to point out that in Paul's introduction here, he indicates that this letter is to those who are at Ephesus. So, obviously, the immediate intended audience for this epistle was the church at Ephesus, right? But Paul's terminology is more specific, and we dare not miss what Paul's saying here. He uses two adjectives in describing these Ephesians. Now, in a broader sense, this letter is to all Christians, But he uses two adjectives. Look at the first thing he says. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus. To the saints. So the Greek word that's used here, it's hagios, and it it carries the idea of one who is set apart or sacred unto God. The, The saint is one who's different than the world. One who is like the Lord in that they're positionally holy. They're positionally perfect before God. Now, we, all, we need to remember that the idea of sainthood, it's not what we sometimes think of. When we think of sainthood, a lot of times we think of the Roman Catholic system of saint, sainthood. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church, the official title of saint, is only given to those whom the church is confident are with God at this time. Those who have died and are with God because of their piety, because of their great deeds for humanity, because of these things, they're with God now. Individuals like Mother Teresa or one of the popes. You see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that only after a long process and great scrutiny by the church and the pope can they know that any individual is worthy of sainthood. Someone that they believe has earned it. They believe this person has earned it. Someone who's now in heaven because of their exemplary life, their great deeds of kindness. Not someone who's saved by grace because God sovereignly chose them before the foundations of the world and at a point in time granted them repentance from sin and faith in Christ. So is this this who Paul's writing to? Are these the only ones who receive the great riches? Paul's about to tell us here, just these people who some council and the popes have decided are saints? No, there's there's no separation between all Christians and real saints is found anywhere in Scripture. Paul's not writing to the dead here. I have good news for you today. If you're a Christian, if you've repented and trusted in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, if you've been regenerated, if you're born again, you are a saint. 
There's no higher status of saints. All Christians are saints. We're all positionally holy before God. We're all His children, set apart unto good works that He has prepared for us to do before the foundations of the world. You're included in those who receive the blessing of God that Paul's about to articulate here. You are the recipients of these great riches. Now, sure, as I said, Paul's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus, but these blessings or these riches are for all believers. Now, I said there's two adjectives, right? There's, there's to the saints. Then he says here, later in the verse, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So when we talk about being faithful in Christ Jesus, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, the New Testament adjective faithful is a, a, just a derivative of faith. The fundamental meaning is that the one so described is trustworthy, someone who's loyal. The root idea is that one has fidelity towards another person or towards God. That's faithfulness. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul commended himself to the Corinthians as one who is faithful, one who is trustworthy, one who is loyal. In Revelation 2.10, the church in Smyrna and subsequent readers are commended, be thou faithful unto death, be loyal, be trustworthy unto death. So those to whom Paul is writing are trustworthy and truly loyal to God. And then Paul adds this, in Christ Jesus. So this indicates that their faithfulness to God is, is based on the fact that they're Christians. They're not faithful on their own. They're faithful because He chose them, because He made them faithful. They're faithful only in Christ Jesus. They're born again. God has regenerated them, and that's why they can truly be said to be faithful. So even before Paul begins to extrapolate the riches that, he, that we receive, we see these riches in the very first couple of verses, don't we? That we're called saints. We see the blessing of being deemed faithful and finally being placed in Christ Jesus. That right there is riches enough. We could shut the book right there and say, praise the Lord. But Paul continues. He goes on and he moves from showing us who the beneficiaries of these riches are to pointing out the basis for these riches. Verses, verse 2 in the first part of verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the first part there is just essentially a greeting, kind of like us saying good morning or hello. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this is more than just a greeting. It's also a reminder. It's a reminder of the grace that we have received from the Father and the Son. Another reminder of the riches. Keep this in mind as we begin to delve into the riches that are now ours in Christ. We don't deserve them. They're by grace. They're undeserved. It's an undeserved gift. So now, as we continue to look at the text, what's the basis or the source of these gifts? Well, the second half of the verse and the complete next verse tell us. Grace to you in peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the basis or the source of these spiritual blessings is God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God, or Friends, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The riches 
that the believer receives are not based on anything else but on God and His perfect will. We need to get that straight. In our society today, we're so man-centered. We're so self-centered. Now, just as we saw in Paul, whose piety had no bearing on his salvation one way or the other, our piety, or lack thereof, has no bearing on God's choice of us either. It's all God's will. And because of this, all praise belongs to God alone. Verse 3 says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It could say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So praise belongs to Him who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice it says, who has blessed us. Has blessed us. This is past tense. It's already occurred. You have these blessings at your disposal now. It doesn't say who will bless us at some point with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're positionally holy before God. When Christ on the cross, when He was on the cross, the sin of the world was placed on His shoulders. It was credited to His account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became sin, not a sinner, to be sure. But He took the wrath that sin deserves. Our sin was imputed. It just means credited to His account. Our sin was put on Him. But that's not all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, His righteousness was imputed or credited to us. We received the righteousness of Christ. Why? We don't deserve it. He took our sin, which He did not deserve, and He gave us His righteousness? Mm. We receive the righteousness of Christ, and with that righteousness comes the inheritance, the abundant riches that we're talking about. We've already received them. If you're born again, if you've trusted in Christ, all the blessings that Paul is about to lay out here in the following verses, are already yours as a believer. If you're a Christian, you should be praising God for the riches you have in Christ. You should be living in those riches. Don't be always overcome by anxiety or worry. Don't be overcome by jealousy or bitterness. Why am I married to this person? I just, I, this is the wrong spouse for me. Don't be overcome by that. Remember who you are in Christ. So, what are these riches? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you would look at verses 4 through 14, we're not going to go through all those. But you see that He chose you. He adopted you. He enlightened you. You were sealed in Him. In Him you have received an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In Him you have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses and sins according to the riches of His grace. And it's all based on the grace of God and the work of Christ. All the praise be to His glory. Those are the riches we have in Christ. Yet we hold on to our potatoes. We don't put them in the back seat. So we've seen the bearer of the good news concerning the riches of the redeemed. 
It's Paul the Apostle who was commissioned by God. Then we saw the beneficiaries of these great riches. They're the faithful saints. We then looked at the basis or the source of these great riches, and we saw that the source is God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the final portion of the text here, we see the breadth of these riches, the extent of these riches. I mean, all throughout this, we've, we've hit on this. But look at the text. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, here it goes, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, God has blessed us with some spiritual blessings. No. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the inclusion of the word spiritual here is not saying that we, re- we, we receive immaterial blessings but not material. No, it's simply being used to indicate the work of God who is the spiritual source of all blessings, right? I mean, every blessing we have received is from God, whether it be material or spiritual, James 1.17. But in the context here, it's best to see Paul as referring to spiritual rather than material blessings. I mean, think about it. Sure, there are times on earth when we receive more blessings and times when we lose things. We don't have material blessings. But when it comes to the spiritual blessings, as we just saw, Paul says here, we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. The riches that are yours go far beyond anything you can even conceive of in the spiritual realm. The mercy of God is vast. We, we see in Ephesians 8, or one chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, God lavishes us with His blessings. It literally says, the riches of His grace, which He lavishes on us. The word used for lavish means to exceed the ordinary, to exceed the necessary, to smother, or to fill, to overflowing. Beloved, God has been generous to you. He has smothered you with His blessings. So do, you, do we understand this? Do we understand that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? One way to gauge this is to listen to how you pray or listen to how others pray. Are you continually asking for things that according to Scripture you already have? Do you pray for more love? But wait a minute, doesn't Romans 5, 5 tell us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us? So if the love of God has been poured out in your heart, what more do you want? Now, you may not be living that way, I understand that. You may not be living that way, but the love is there. The love of God has been poured out in your heart. Or maybe you ask for more faith or more joy. My friends, these things are already yours in their fullest measure if you're a Christian. John 15, 11 says, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Colossians 2.10 tells us that in Him you have been made complete. Spiritually, you lack nothing. So Paul wants us to see the vastness of these riches. Now, just when you think he's covered the extent of these riches, that you're like, Paul, okay, I understand. I'm being smothered by the the riches of God, by his great love. Just when you think it's enough, Paul adds this. In the heavenly places. In Christ. So this pretty much 
covers the entire supernatural realm of God. This is his full domain, if you will. And since Christ is our Lord and King, we're citizens of this realm, the heavenly places. And as citizens, we have all the rights and privileges thereof. Remember, you've been adopted as his children, receiving an inheritance from him. So where is your focus today? Is your focus completely on the things of this world, on the earth? Or is it heavenward? Are you pursuing the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father? Or are you constantly thinking on the things that are temporal? Remember, your true life is the supernatural. But I understand you're, you're presently trapped in the tension between the earthly and the heavenly. So the key to living as heavenly creatures while living in an unheavenly situation is to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. When we walk in His power, He produces fruit in us. So we receive our heavenly blessings by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you walking by faith? Are you walking in the Spirit? These, these blessings are vast. The wealth we have in Christ is greater than anything we could ever obtain on earth. But also, don't miss the end of the verse here. Once again, all these blessings, these vast riches are only applied to those, he adds this again, who are in Christ. Only the believer is rich. The unbeliever is poor. They're spiritually barren. Actually, they're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.8 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Spiritually dead. They need Christ. They need to turn from their, their sins in repentance and place their trust fully in Christ, at which point they will be rich. In Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says this. Sorry, let me get there. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're not weary and heavy laden, if you're not broken over your sin, you can't come to him. The invitation goes out to all, but only those who are broken, only those who see their need for Christ will come to him. Only those who see that they're poor. If you think you're rich, you won't come to him. The invitation isn't for you. At the point that you see you're poor, then you come to him. Because when you're rich, you're not weary and heavy laden. If you think you're rich, the Pharisees, they thought they were rich. They weren't weary and heavy laden. They were proud and arrogant. They weren't going to come to Christ. <clears throat> but all those who are weary, those who recognize their poor condition, before Christ, they will come to Him. They will heed this call and come. And then they will be rich. They will receive these abundant riches that are put forth for the believer. Now, after the introduction here, Paul begins, this, he begins to elaborate on this rich, these riches. He lays out the riches of the redeemed in fast succession. He begins, as I said, in verse 4, and he goes through verse 14. That's for another sermon. In our text today, we looked at three verses concerning the riches of the redeemed. And these three verses showed us the beneficiaries of these wonderful riches, saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, the basis for these wonderful riches, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the breadth of these wonderful riches. 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I pray that as you reflect on these realities, that it will bring you to a greater appreciation for your position in Christ and bring about greater worship in your life. I pray that as you carry out your daily activities in the world, the reality of who you are in Christ will be in the forefront of your mind. As you face sin, as you face temptation, you'll remember who you are in Christ. The reality that you are a faithful saint, that you're spiritual wealthy because of God, because he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in all areas of his domain. That you won't live like Hetty Green in your spiritual life, but you'll live like who you are in Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for these abundant riches that we have in Christ. I pray that you would bring about rejoicing in our hearts for you, that we would be growing in our walk, we would be growing in holiness, and that we would share this truth with others as well. We would remember what you've done for us and who you are and who we are in Christ. Bless the rest of our time this morning as we enter into communion. I pray that we would examine our hearts to see if there's any sin we need to confess this morning. As we remember what you've done for us on the cross, I just pray that you'd be glorified now as we go to communion. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.